welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. It's Good Friday, and you are welcome here. We bring into this Friday what happened on Thursday, Monday, last week, last month, this last year. We are carrying all of it. It distracts us, discourages us, drives us crazy. Maybe it's really hard to call this week, this month, this year, good. But today is good. It's Good Friday. On this day, We remember that day. We remember Him. The suffering of Jesus. The death of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. We remember His love. His grace. His kindness and mercy. We remember His compassion. His sacrifice. His example. We remember His suffering, His death, His cross. And as we do, the past enters the present and meets us right where we are. So don't be afraid to open your mind, open your heart, open your hands. God has a gift for you in this day. Good Friday. And you are here to receive it. Welcome to Good Friday at the Well. My name is BJ. I'm privileged to be one of the pastors here on staff. Privileged also to be with you on this day. Uh, wherever you happen to be joining us from, if you're new to church, if you're new to the well, if you're a part of the family here, if you're on your own watching at home, maybe you're even listening uh, where you are in the car or something or together with uh, some people in your home. Uh, This is a day uh, in the Christian calendar every year that Christians for 2,000 years have stopped and observed to remember the suffering and the death of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ who was born uh, approximately 2,000 years ago and lived for a relatively short period of time. And in fact, we know not so much about most of his life except for three years. That he was born uh, a carp- uh, into a carpenter's family, was the son of a carpenter, became a carpenter himself, and then eventually began to travel around um, Palestine at that time, teaching, um, healing, uh, with a kind of, of authority and um, wisdom that people had never heard before, uh, with a kind of compassion and love um, towards, especially towards people who were marginalized or excluded um, and, and that the rest of society had pushed to the edges and healing with a kind of power that people had never seen before. Eventually, Jesus was killed, was crucified on a Roman cross by the religious and the political establishment of the day. In fact, his, his death is well attested in history. The Roman historian and Senator Tacitus wrote about the death of Jesus of Nazareth. The Jewish historian Josephus also wrote about the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' followers in his biographies, uh, most of which we find in the scriptures, wrote about his life and particularly his death. But it is not just a historical fact. In fact, in the, in the weeks and months and years that followed, the followers of Jesus started to make note about the fact that this was a death, and they used these kinds of words to describe it, that it was a death for us, that it was a death in our place, that it was a death that brought us life. And in that sense, they began to talk about the death of Jesus, not just something that happened in history, but something that personally was very relevant for every person, for each of us. 
And one of the things we find in the stories of um, Jesus interacting with people, there was, there was very much a lot of individual encounters. And the writers of the New Testament began to observe that each of them would say, well, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for us. It's one of the things, if you get baptized here at the well, or maybe you get baptized somewhere else, that someone asked you at some point, do you believe that Jesus died for you? There's a very personal aspect to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we stop today on Good Friday to remember and reflect on it and to contemplate it, not simply as something that happened to one person in history, but as something where history, in a sense, collides with the present and it affects us very much. And that we, in reflecting on it and remembering it, realize what it means to us. And so today we have a chance uh, to journey through, we're going to talk through three different symbols, a mirror, a table, and a door. And you see those behind me. They are all symbols that are meant to help us realize the significance of the death of Jesus for each of us. And so over the next hour, we're going to have a chance to journey through that, to sing some songs together, all with the aim of, I guess here's what I'm, my hope and prayer has been. For some of you, it's say, yeah, I don't, I kind of know that happened in history. I know that's what the cross means, but I don't understand what it meant. Why is it such a significant thing? Maybe you're someone who's new to faith or you're saying, I'm not even a person of faith. I'm just exploring what is the significance of this death of this person 2000 years ago to my life today? But also maybe for many of us who would say, yes, I know Jesus died for me. Um, that you would have a deeper, richer, fuller understanding, not only of what his death meant, but it would actually lead you to a deeper, richer, fuller experience of worship for yourself as you stop today and celebrate Good Friday.
All the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And I want to begin with uh, thinking about the death of Jesus through the the, the symbol of a mirror. And when you think about this, a, a mirror, in a sense, is, uh, is, is something that reflects back to us things, right? It reflects back to us things to see. And that's why we even use the word reflect, to contemplate and to see things coming back. And one of the things we'll find in the death of Jesus and the accounts of Jesus' death, they are not just historical accounts. In a sense, they function like a mirror that is playing back things to us about ourselves and about our lives today that we were meant to to see. And there's a few things as I was praying about this and thinking about it myself. What is it in the story of the, of the suffering and death of Jesus that we see um, that's more than just the historical account that actually plays back to us things we're meant to realize are going on in our own lives today? One of the things we see right away in the death of Jesus and his story is that it was pride that put Jesus to death. Pride put Jesus to death. The scriptures describe that actually the the religious leaders that he was interacting with of those days, who were the ones who who had wealth and who had control and who had power because of their religious position, that Jesus teaching and, and him becoming more popular with the crowds and people saying, we've never heard anyone teach like this. And the religious leaders were, it says they were very, um, because they were, uh, uh, their pride was being wounded. There was a self-righteousness about them saying, who are you to teach? But you're not even an official rabbi. How dare you go around claiming authority like this? We see this all the time that in a sense, one of the things that killed Jesus was not just the nails in the cross, but pride, the pride of the religious establishment, the self-righteousness of the religious leaders around him. We also see uh, in, in the, what, what else put Jesus to death was, if I can say this, control. 
The religious leaders, because of their position, because of their authority, they had control over the people. And in fact, Rome had told them to maintain control. And so anyone who was starting to teach and have uh, groups of followers that were different than what they were teaching was a threat to their control. And in fact, Rome itself and Pontius Pilate, who was in charge of keeping, representing Rome and keeping the peace in that area of what was the Roman Empire, was also worried about losing control with the um, you know, this new religious teacher. And, and that was actually what the motivation was given to him to say, hey, you better stamp this out. Control or the love of control put Jesus to death. But we can also say that jealousy put Jesus to death. As I said, the pride that the religious leaders had was also mixed in with jealousy as many more people were starting to follow him. And many people who wouldn't otherwise go near the temple, who didn't seem to be interested in religious things, were very interested in the things that Jesus was talking about and the way he talked about God. And so there was a jealousy in them that wanted to get rid of someone who was competing with them. We can also say that fear put Jesus to death. The people who were ultimately responsible for killing him, the religious leaders and the political establishment, they feared because they had a lot to lose. They feared being insignificant. They feared losing their, all of these things that was, was something they were afraid of. And so in fear, they stamped out this threat of both the religious leaders and the Roman establishment operated out of fear. But we also see that abuse of power put Jesus to death. The religious leaders used their power. In fact, at one point in the story, when Jesus is on trial, it says the religious leaders stirred up the crowd. They used the crowd. They didn't love the people. They used them. They used their power to stir up the people against Jesus to have him crucified. And even Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator, who, because the, um, the Jewish people weren't allowed to execute anyone, they couldn't give anyone the death sentence, Rome had that right alone. And so they had to convince the Roman procurator to condemn him to death. And at one point it says in the account that he believed Jesus was innocent, but he still did not use his power to free an innocent man. He used his power to condemn. And so we see pride, control, jealousy, fear, abuse of power, putting Jesus to death. We also see love of money, putting Jesus to death. We don't think about this a lot, but one of the things we observe in the teachings of Jesus in the gospel accounts is Jesus was going after the religious leaders hard. And it says, because they loved money. And a lot of the teaching he said was either, was either directly or indirectly confronting their greed, confronting the privilege place that they had in society that allowed them to be wealthy, confronting the fact that they didn't use their money in the service of the poor or to help others. And that they loved all of the honor that they got. And it said they got so angry at him, at the way he, he seemed to boldly confront them about their love of money and their love of power and all these things that they said, we have to put him to death. <laughs> but also cowardice put Jesus to death. His friends abandoned him. All of these people that he had healed and ministered to and cared for and who loved him apparently when he was popular at the moment, the tide of public opinion turned against him. They all abandoned him and nobody defended him to his death. Friends, these were all things that we can actually see in the story of Jesus suffering and death, but they are a mirror. Walter Wangren in his book, Reliving the Passion said it this way. He said, mirrors that hide nothing hurt us, right? Mirrors that hide nothing hurt us. They are dangerous. He says, a mirror like this, the cross, the suffering of Jesus is a mirror that is dangerous. Why? Because it actually reflects back to us that in many ways, I have all of these things in me 
There is pride in me. There is control in me. There is jealousy in me. There is fear in me. There is um, an unwillingness to use whatever power I have in the service of others or the temptation to use others for my own gain. There is love of money in me. There is cowardice in me. All of this, we cannot just say, oh, look at what those terrible people did to Jesus. No, the death of Jesus actually reveals this is what sin looks like in everyone. Not just broken people, but broken systems of power and justice and authority. And we are all part of it. That's why this is a dangerous mirror, the suffering and death of Jesus. It reflects back to us things that we see in ourselves. But Walter Wangren also goes, goes on to point out we cannot turn away from a mirror like this, even though we want to, right? He said, a mirror that hides nothing hurts me. And so I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. But he said, we cannot turn away from a mirror like the suffering and death of Jesus. Why? Because it is not just dangerous that it reveals who we are. It is also a mirror of grace. It reflects back to us, not only our sin, but the fact that Jesus chose to die for these things. Yes, all of these things put him to death, but the scriptures say that he chose to die. He did not defend himself. He did not fight these things. He willingly chose to take our sin, all of this stuff and the brokenness of humanity on us in order to forgive it, which makes this mirror for those who are in Christ, grace alone. We do not need to turn away from the suffering and death of Jesus because it is actually the place not only that reveals that there's all of this stuff within us, but also that there is grace for us because of this. And so I wonder as you, you know, think about Good Friday for you today, whether you would be willing with me to take a few moments now just to pause before we sing a song that the band's going to lead us in called The Scandal of Grace, which just is a poetic way to describe this, that we would take a few moments and I just want to lead you through a couple minutes of reflection on Good Friday, about perhaps what the mirror of the suffering and death of Jesus might be reflecting back to you and to me. And so first, I want to invite you to consider that you might see this stuff, some of this stuff in you. I see this in me. I see these things in me. And maybe one of those words in particular, pride or fear or jealousy or love of control or uh, abuse of power, like, you know, using others or love of money or cowardice. Maybe one in particular, you say, yeah, I see that in me, if I'm honest. And as you see that in you, maybe more honestly, we say, hey, it's probably even worse than I think it is. Maybe we don't see it that often. We think about it, but it gets reflected back to us. Maybe not even just by the suffering and death of Jesus, but by the suffering we cause others in our lives because of it, it reflects back to us. Maybe there's more of this than I want to admit. But then on this day, we gladly remember that Jesus offers us grace for this, for this particular thing that is in us. He died for that. He knows that about us. He offers us grace and forgiveness. And maybe most beautifully true about this, the scriptures say that Jesus' death has put to death sin. Jesus' death can actually kill this pride in me. It can kill this fear in me. It can kill this cowardice in me and in you. Friends, the suffering and death of Jesus is a, is a mirror. And it is dangerous because of what it shows us, but it is full of grace for those who are willing to receive it. And so now I'd invite you just to join the band as they lead us in this song of grace that invites us to receive it from Jesus. Grace, what have you done? 
day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The cross of Jesus Christ is not just a mirror. It is also a table. One of the things you'll find when you read the biographies of Jesus is that he had so many meals with people. And that was not an accident. Um, In the ancient world, in the first century in the Near East, meals were a very significant part of daily life. In fact, they were the center of relationship. 
And Jesus, in the many accounts of him eating meals with people, was not just sharing food, although that's what you do at a a meal, right? You have a common meal, a common food that you share together. Uh, But it is a way of sharing life, sharing relationship. It is a place of intimacy. The table is a place where relationship happens. Uh, Meals in those days were long before cup holders and drive-thrus, right? There was no, uh, you didn't eat just quickly to get it through. It was a place of encounter with the others you were eating with. And by your presence at the meal with them, you were inviting them to um, be in relationship with you. And there was a, a, uh, having a meal with someone was a sign of acceptance and love and closeness and familial relationships. You know, families, extended families shared meals together. And so the mealtime, the table is such a significant place. But the very last meal Jesus had with his disciples, there's actually paintings of it and it's, and it's traditionally known as the Last Supper, was a very unique kind of meal. In fact, Jesus said to him, and it was on the same night that he was betrayed, right before he was about to die, he said to his disciples, I have longed to eat this meal with you. It was something he was looking forward to. But he did something different at this meal. It was, it was a table like this, but bigger and more people around it. There was the 12 disciples plus Jesus. And he took something that would have been common for them, bread and wine. And as he was serving the food, he said something to them that no one had ever said about bread and wine and even that particular Passover meal before. No one had ever said this about the meal. He said, when he took the bread, he said to them, this is my body. I want you to think of bread as often as you eat it as remembering my body, which is going to be broken for you. And they didn't fully understand even what he was talking about. As they wrote it down after, they thought, oh, that's what he meant. He was talking about his suffering and his death, the breaking, his suffering. He said, "Um, my, my body will be broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is um, my blood that is shed for you. And so he took these elements and he said, as long or as often as you do those and you you eat and drink, remember my suffering for you. What is the suffering of Jesus that they were going to need to remember, that they were going to witness? It was the suffering of an innocent person being falsely accused and arrested. It was the suffering of someone who was misunderstood, whose things he said were taken out of context, that people didn't really get who he was. They didn't believe who he was, that he was the son of God. It was the suffering of someone who was mocked and falsely condemned based on the false accusations. And like we said, the pride and jealousy and control of others. It was a suffering of of abuse. And we see in the suffering of Jesus, physical abuse, Emotional abuse, verbal abuse, people taunting him, mocking him, trying to break him down physically and emotionally and spiritually. We see that. We see that was the suffering of abuse. We see it was the suffering of torture. The suffering of abandonment where in his greatest hour of need, his friends left him and the people who had the power to save him chose not to do it. And it was the suffering of separation from God. Jesus says, this is my suffering that I want you to remember. And he invited them to remember his sufferings like this. Why? Well, one of the New Testament uh, writers, one of the followers of Jesus said it this way. If we share in his sufferings, we also then get to share in his comfort. If we share in his sufferings, we also get to share in his comfort. And what does that mean? What does it mean to share in the suffering of Jesus? Like we, you know, we share a meal, but what does it mean to share in the sufferings of Jesus? It means that you and I worship and love a savior and a God who has suffered like us. In a sense, he was broken. He had a body that could be broken, even as our bodies break down or are broken with sickness or disease or death. Our God understands. Our God is not far off and disconnected from our suffering in our world saying, try to be a good person, try to follow everything I taught you, but I'm not going to live it. No, he was a God who was himself, who has, was, was suffered and was broken for us. And so he says, I share, I'm sharing in your sufferings and you are sharing in mine. 
It's actually even a recognition of the fact that to follow Jesus means you will probably suffer. He said that. He said, if you're going to follow me, you're probably going to suffer like me. And in many ways, those of you that are followers of Jesus know there is a suffering that comes from following him. Perhaps you have experienced the suffering of abandonment or rejection by family or the people closest to you because of your faith. Perhaps you have experienced ridicule from friends or just a world that thinks that the way you choose to live, the things you do and the things you choose not to do are silly or dumb or even wrong. That there's suffering that comes like the suffering of Jesus when he was waiting on God to come through for him and said, okay, I'm going to have to go through this alone. When you can't see God or God seems like he's not coming through, there's a suffering to still believe and have faith. And many of us know that suffering as well. And there is a suffering that just comes from living in this, these broken and frail bodies. And Jesus says, I share that with you. That we share in his sufferings and he shares in ours. And the scriptures say that not only do we share in it, we get comfort from it because our God has suffered like us and with us and for us. There's a suffering that comes even from temptation when we are tempted to do the things that we know we are not called to do or, or tempted to give up on the things that Jesus invites us to do and follow. There's a suffering that comes when you have to bear under temptation. And another Jesus follower actually said that. He said, when you, because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are suffering when they are being tempted. This is what it means to share in the sufferings of Jesus. And so the table is a place where we remember, oh God, you are with me in this. Your suffering was for me and with me, but also you identify with my suffering. And so if you're coming here today, if this Good Friday finds you in a place of suffering, in a place of hardship, in a place of physical or emotional or mental or spiritual pain, If nothing else, all of us have been sharing in the hardship of deprivation over this last year of things that we have been taken away from us or severely limited, that we come to a table with a God who has suffered with us and like us and for us. And so I want to invite you now to share in his sufferings by actually just sharing in communion together. And so you may have a a loaf of bread like this one. You may have a cracker or something like that with you. And I invite you to just take that if you're on your own or with the people that you're with, to remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you, suffering and dying for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is a new promise, a new way of relating to God, of relating to the world, of seeing your own suffering. And so we take the bread, which symbolizes his body, and the cup, which symbolizes his blood. And we remember and we are thankful that we have a Savior who suffered with us and like us and for us. Let's eat together. invite you to join the band as they continue to lead us in songs of reflection of this brokenness that has given us grace and life. See 
criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? 
We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a mirror that reflects back to us things that we can see in ourselves and ask him for grace and forgiveness. It's not just a table where we are able to share in his life and his suffering and find comfort in ours and where we realize we are not alone in our sufferings. But it is also a door. And this is maybe something we don't think about or see. It certainly wasn't something the first followers of Jesus saw when he was being killed. They did not see a door. But the writing on this door helps us understand what do we mean that the cross of Jesus Christ is a door? Here's what's written on this door. Not the end. The cross of Jesus Christ was not the end of the story. It was actually a doorway to something that was beyond the cross. That if it weren't there would make this day not good at all. And we wouldn't even be celebrating it. In fact, there were many other teachers and rabbis like Jesus around that time claiming to be the Messiah whose followers started to follow him and say, he's the one who's going to rescue us and save us and lead us into something totally new. And you know, when all of those kind of revolutions ended, whenever the Messiah or the leader was killed, that was the end of the revolution. But with Jesus, his death was the beginning. It was the day the revolution began. Why? It's not because of the door itself. It's not because of what happened at the cross at the beginning, but it was because of what was beyond it. In fact, one follower of Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews said it this way, look at Jesus for the joy that was set before him, what he endured the cross and scorned its shame. That verse said, it's what was beyond the door, beyond the cross. The joy that was beyond it, it is what allowed him to endure it. And it even says that he scorned because of what was beyond the door. He was able to scorn the shame of the cross. What does that mean? It's like he was saying to the cross, ha, to death, ha, you don't have the final word. This is not the end. You see, Jesus didn't choose to die because he loved suffering in some masochistic kind of way. He didn't choose to die because he thought that if he suffered, God would love him or he had the love of the father. He wasn't trying to earn more love. He did not. In fact, he asked, is there no other way than this? He did not want to suffer, but he chose it not for suffering itself, but was for what was beyond it, <laughs> which is actually what we celebrate in a couple of days, right? That is the resurrection of Jesus. It was the joy of moving from death to life and to starting a whole new way to live with his followers and to start the church. Those were all the things Jesus, it was our joy as the church that 2000 years later would celebrate his death and his life that gave Jesus the ability to persevere beyond the door, beyond the cross. And this is something that is so important for us. We who live in a society that says, oh, now is all you have. You only live once. You might as well make the most of it. Heaven can be a place on earth that somehow we can make that this is as good as it's going to get. And that often causes us to pursue things that we, we think we'll find life in, but we don't or have despair because all we see is the emptiness of what we've tried to find to make heaven a place on earth because we only live once. The cross of Jesus Christ says, no, this death is not the end. The decay and the despair and even the death that we see in our lives is not the end. There is joy beyond it.
And that's why the Apostle Paul, a few years later, someone who had suffered intensely would say to a young church, he says this, because of Jesus, his death and resurrection, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly and the way things look around us, we are wasting away. He says, inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Why? Because our light and momentary troubles, what we can see are achieving for us something beyond an eternal glory that will far outweigh anything we are suffering now. He says, therefore, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is what? Say it with me, temporary. What is unseen is eternal. What is temporary now, he says? The troubles we can see. And he, he calls them light and momentary. And you might say, Paul, please don't call my troubles light and momentary. And, and just for a moment, let me remind you that he's, he's not being dismissive of our troubles and struggles. This is someone, Paul himself, who twice was beaten within, uh, to near death and was saved twice. Um, he was shipwrecked. Um, he was persecuted. He was criticized. Um, he was imprisoned multiple times. Um, this is not someone who had light and momentary troubles, but what was he saying? He said, look, beyond this door, beyond this life, because of the resurrection of Jesus, I know there is something coming that will make what we are going through now seem light and momentary. And we will one day go, ha, that was not the end. He says, therefore, we don't lose heart. Don't fix your eyes on what you can see. All of the troubles, all the despair. Yes, we acknowledge our suffering. Yes, Christ shares in them, but it is not the end. We fix our eyes on what is unseen, what is beyond, because that is eternal. My friends, that is what we celebrate, that the cross of Jesus Christ was not an end, but a doorway to life, not only for Christ, but the scriptures say for all of us who are in Christ, that death, suffering, pain, trial, hardship is not the end of the story. And my hope and my prayer for you and I, even as we stop um, and take stock even of this last year, it's been a year, right? Since the last Easter when we were in lockdown that we would on the one hand know we have a Christ who shares with us, a God who shares with in our, in our sufferings, but these sufferings are not the end. And my prayer is that even as you journey through this Easter weekend, from Good Friday to Saturday to Resurrection Day Sunday, that you will experience the fact that this is not the end. Where you are now is not the end of the story, that something is coming that one day will far outweigh all that we are experiencing now. And so I'd invite you just to celebrate that truth as we sing this song, Savior King, with the band.
consuming all for your son's holy name. And now our hearts burn with a flame of fire consuming all for your son's holy name. Sing it out loud now. And now our hearts burn with a flame of fire consuming all for your son's holy name. And with the heavens we declare, you are our King. We love you, Lord. We worship you. My dear friends, I don't know about you, but I am so glad that Jesus' cross was not the end of the story, that it was a doorway to future hope, to joy, that the resurrection that came three days later was the definitive answer that our sufferings and our pain are only temporary and that hope is coming. And so I just want to invite you to wait in that place of hope this weekend and to come back on Sunday and celebrate what is on the other side of this door. What was on the other side of the cross and the grave for Jesus? Not just so that we can remember it happened to him, but so that you and I can have our hope renewed that what we are facing now is not the end. So God bless. I hope you have a great Easter weekend and we will see you Sunday morning.